The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. If you like, Mr. Stevens, I could bring in some more cuttings for you. Thank you, Miss Kendall. But I regard this room as my private place of work, and I, I prefer to keep distractions to a minimum. Would you call flowers a distraction, then, Mr. Stevens? I appreciate your kindness, Miss Kenton, but uh, I prefer to keep things as they are. Oh, and since you are here, uh, there is a matter I wanted to mention to you, just a small matter. I happened to be uh, walking past the kitchen yesterday morning, and I heard you calling to someone named William. May I ask who it was you were addressing by that name? Why, Mr. Stevens, I should think I was addressing your father. Oh. There are no other Williams in this house, I take it? True. May I ask you in future, Miss Kenton, to address my father as Mr. Stevens? And if you are speaking of him to a third party, you may wish to call him Mr. Stevens Sr. to distinguish him from myself. So I would be most grateful to you, Miss Kenton. I don't quite hmm? understand what you're getting at, Mr. Stevens. I am the housekeeper in this house, and your father is the underbutler. In other houses, I was accustomed to address the underservants by their Christian names. Hmm. Miss Kenton, if you would stop to think for a moment, you would realize that how inappropriate it is for one such as yourself to address as William, someone such as my father. Well, I'm sure, Mr. Stevens, it must have been very galling for your father to be called William by one such as myself. Miss Kenton, all I'm saying is that my father is a person from whom, if you wish to be more observant, you may learn many things. I'm most grateful for your advice, Mr. Stevens, but do please tell me just what marvelous things might I learn from your father. I might point out that you are still often unsure of what goes where and which item is which. I'm sure Mr. Stevens Sr. is very good at his job. But I can assure you, Mr. Stevens, that I am very good at mine. Of course. Thank you. And uh, now, if you will, please excuse me. Miss Kinton? Oh, well. That's Emma Thompson and Anthony Hopkins in the marvelous 1993 film The Remains of the Day, an excellent adaptation of a most excellent novel by Kazuo Ishiguro. Our guest today, the Nigerian-born novelist Chigozi Obioma, might seem like an unlikely choice. To give us an entree into The Remains of the Day, his own fiction has been described as murderous and mysterious, striking and lyrical, quote, Awesome in the true sense of the word, crackling with life, freighted with death, and vertiginous in its style and the elemental power of its story. End quote. Important, urgent, says one critic. A madman's apocalyptic vision, says another. But in addition to more obvious comparisons like Chinua Achebe, the New York Times calls Obioma the heir to Achebe, or a thematic cousin like Cormac McCarthy, Chigozi has chosen for us a quiet novel to discuss today, the introspective, stirring, and surprisingly dramatic work by Kazuo Ishiguro. As far as I know, Chigozi's works, The Fishermen and An Orchestra of Minorities, have not been compared with The Remains of the Day, and yet that only gives us something very fascinating to explore. What is it about that book? about an English butler in the 1950s that kept Chikozi up all night reading. What did he take away from the book, and how did it help him understand the power of fiction and what fiction can do? 
Chigozi Obioma is here today to talk about all that, plus his childhood in Nigeria, how he got started as a storyteller, and his new nonfiction work for Alexander, a digital storytelling platform that unites some of the world's greatest authors, filmmakers, and actors to produce a multimedia listening and viewing experience. All that plus... We have plus, plus, plus a listener email or a couple of them today on the history of literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. I'm so glad you could join us. Wow. Jane Austen week last week. We set some records, I think. You know how these stats go. I can never be quite sure. Onward and upward for our humble little podcast, including another milestone. Remember I said at the beginning of all this, I was shooting for a million downloads. And after the first few months or first year or so, I thought, okay, okay, I'm on a good pace. Only 40 more years to go. Well, We picked up the pace. Now we've passed 2 million downloads, and we should cross the 3 million threshold sometime in the next week or so. Maybe you are the the 3 millionth listener, dear listener. (laughs) We're on a pace to pass 5 million before the end of the year, 2021. So my thanks to all of you, dear listeners, for helping to keep this show growing and thriving. We jumped 185 places in Argentina last week. (laughs) Who knows why? Maybe they love Jane Austen, too. We are now the number 14 arts podcast there, which is kind of amazing. Maybe they love Jane Austen. I'm getting all tangled up in the stats this week. (laughs) It can drive you crazy, but it's also kind of fun. We're in the top five for books podcasts in Greece and Romania. And in the top 10 in Finland, India, and Cyprus, we're still hanging on in Malta, I think, the number four podcast there. I'm really starting to like the Maltese. People of very refined taste. They're up there with our postal worker in rural Sweden who emailed us early in the life of the show and our Brazilian friends, of course, who keep adding themselves to our list. We love our Brazilian friends. And the young woman who loaded up her listening device with history of literature episodes to take with her on her trip to Mongolia, where she was going to ride horses all day and fall asleep looking at the stars, listening to literature. Our French vintner, our friends in Ireland and Nova Scotia and Australia and New Zealand, so many other wonderful emails we've gotten over the years from India and Senegal and Iran, just everywhere, truly Our cup has runneth over. And that couple who broke up, remember them? And then they texted one another about the episode of the podcast, and they wound up getting back together and got married. Wow. They sent them a couple of mugs for their wedding. (laughs) Maybe they're listening now, drinking their coffee. I hope things are going well. Or the high school class in New Mexico who are listening together. This starting to get a little choked up. I better stop there. We better get to our guest, who is exceptional. This is the real deal, people. A wonderful author, Chigozi Obioma, is here today for a fascinating conversation. I loved 
speaking with him. And my thanks to Alexander for helping to put this together. You can learn more about them and their exciting new initiative at www.alxr.com. Check that out. So let's take a quick break, listen to an email or two, and then get straight to the conversation. All that after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, first up is, well, I'm going to use a pseudonym for this one. Let's call him Z, Listener Z. Subject, thank you, Jack. Hello, Jack. I'm unsure if I sent this email to the correct address that would enable it to be read on an episode, but if so, wonderful, and hello to all you listeners as well. Jack, I hope you're doing well. My name is Z, and I am a high school senior from a southern state. I've redacted that as well. I came across your podcast about a month ago and have been listening nonstop ever since. It actually started with a girl, classic, in my class whom I had a crush on. Oh boy, let me pause there. This is potentially good. Remember, we have a pretty good track record here. We've got (laughs) saved a couple of marriages and we've gotten some people together. This is exciting. Back to the email. We have a mutual love for literature, so the majority of our few conversations revolved around that. Mm, This is promising. When she recommended this podcast to me, I will admit I was skeptical. Oh, Z, don't lose me. Podcasts were never really my thing. However, I wanted an excuse to talk to her, so I decided to give it a try. Within minutes, I was sold. Hooray. I started off with the Christmas episode on Dickens and Ebenezer Scrooge and have been bouncing between episodes since. Jack, this podcast has brought me so much joy over the last month. I love the insight and heart that you bring to me through these episodes. Thank you very much, Z, but come on. 
What about the friend? <laughs> I am genuinely inspired by what I hear each time I press play, and I cannot wait to listen. Come on, Z. Come on. Tell us about the friend. I cannot wait to listen to the past three years of episodes that I missed out on. I think it might be five years, but anyway. The episode on the cask of Amontillado is brilliant. It is now one of my favorite short stories. The friend. Tell us about the friend. Also, your intro, outro. You say outro? Intro, outro, outro music is perfect. Thank you very much, Z. Come on, the friend. Well, sadly... It appears that nothing will pan out between the girl and me. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, you didn't even let me down easy. Just came right out with it, didn't you, Z? Nothing will pan out. Oh, no. Let me continue with the email. She truly gave me a special gift by introducing me to you and your podcast. Well, that's nice. Anyways, thank you, Jack, for listening to my jumbled thoughts, and thank you very much for this heartening podcast. Much love, Z. Oh, okay, Z. A heartening podcast. Well, heartening is one way to put it, I guess. I was hoping for heartening in a little bit of a different direction, but I'm going to try not to be disappointed. This is a beautiful email. I am glad that this friend of yours put you onto the show. And I'm very glad you've been enjoying it. And yet I was a little crushed. I wanted a happy ending to the story that involved your friend. But guess what? Maybe that's in your future. With her, who knows? But if not, that's okay too. You are very young and have plenty of time. And maybe you'll find someone else who shares your love for literature. And maybe you'll have other things in common instead. Good luck to you, Z, and thank you again for your kind words about the show. Happy listening. Listener Phil wrote in with some French TV recommendations. You might remember that we talked about Lupin, which is currently on Netflix, and I mentioned that although I've seen many French films that I've enjoyed, I had an absence of French television shows in my cultural portfolio. Lupin was amazing. I loved it. Everyone should check that out. Well, listener Phil recommended a couple French TV shows to catch me up. He says, quote, The first is A French Village. This is a seven-season show about a French town in the Jura region. You say Jura or Jura? I don't know. I should look these things up. Jura, Jura region during the German occupation of World War II. It has a very nuanced view of what happened to the French and the Germans portrayed. The cast was excellent with no big name stars. The other is The Bureau. This is a five so far season portrait of the DGSE, the French equivalent of the CIA or MI6. During a season, there are several stories told somewhat interlocking, unlike Homeland, which only had the main story. This show is so good that I would rate this with the best I have ever seen. Parentheses, Sopranos, The Wire, Better Call Saul slash Breaking Bad. The Americans, Broadchurch, I, Claudius, Anna Karenina, the night manager. End quote. Thank you, Phil. I will check those out. A French Village and the Bureau. They both sound excellent. Boy, putting anything in the same category with Breaking Bad is a very strong recommendation, for me at least. Okay, let's take one more break and then come back with our guest, Chikosi Obioma, after this. 
Okay, joining me now is Chigozi Obioma, who's been called the heir to Shinwa Achebe by the New York Times. His novels, The Fisherman and An Orchestra of Minorities, were both shortlisted for the Booker Prize, and his works have been translated into 30 languages. In 2015, he was named one of 100 Global Thinkers by Foreign Policy Magazine. He joins us today to talk about his work, his participation in a new digital storytelling platform called Alexander, and his love for the book Remains of the Day by Kazuo Ishiguro. Chikozi Obioma, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you very much for having me. It's such a pleasure. Oh, good. So I know you attended Michigan for graduate school, and you now teach at the University of Nebraska, but let's start with your childhood. Where did you grow up? So I grew up in Akure in the west of Nigeria. Mm. So it's it's a a city that if you were to drive now, uh, and I suppose the roads are good, <laughs> yeah. it should take about uh, four hours from Lagos, which oh. is a city that everyone seems to know about, yes. Yeah, right. And what kind of childhood did you have? So I grew up in a very interesting uh, family structure. So I I had uh, my family as a kind of a, a loose model for the, the family in, in my first novel, The Fisherman. So uh, we will eventually become 12 kids, mm. you know, but uh, as, a, as, as when I was growing up, uh, there were always, you know, a crowd of kids around. Yeah. And, you know, I know people often think that uh, Africans have so many kids. I mean, that might be true, but it wasn't at all the reality when I was growing up. Uh, so we were very, very eccentric. And, you know, we were often mocked in at schools, at functions. And, you know, the neighborhood kids, uh, you know, had like a, a nickname for us, you know, Obioma, which means like, you know, those who produce uh, children, <laughs> like, like chickens. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so why were they mocking you? Just because there just seemed to be so many of you? Right, yeah, and mm. and you know it, it was it was it was uh, kind of unusual. So uh, starting from sometime in the mid eighties, um, there was a movement in Nigeria to uh, curtail you know the over the population, and so so there was like a strict the, the military dictators because we mm. have like a number of them back in the eighties and nineties. So they they had this strict uh, you know like advisory that people must have like limited number of kids mm -hmm. so in, in that way my dad was like a kind of a renegade yeah. you know because he was <laughs> going against the norm yeah and what did your dad do so he was uh, a a banker he was an accountant uh, right and, uh, yeah so he, he was relatively well to do yeah uh, where did you fit in in the birth order so i'm the fifth the fifth so right in the middle yeah yeah, right, kind of right. In the right, middle, almost yeah. So in the middle, have, yeah. Yeah, three older brothers and one older sister. Uh-huh. And I can imagine that you were all kind of scrambling to, to find an identity as a kid. What, were you the bookish one? Was that your thing, that you were the one who went to the library, or were you doing other things at that time? So it was something like that. So um, obviously, uh, you know, as you said, there, there was always this scramble to get the attention of, of our parents and to, to stick out. Yeah. I mean, all of us were doing very well in school, but for some reason I um, became the one who became very interested in stories and the mm -hmm. imaginary world. I, I think it was 
more so some kind of need to escape as well. So yeah. it could have been all of that, yes. And did you know any writers or have any teachers who were encouraging you to write, or were you mainly just finding stories in books or or uh, through oral storytellers or on television or anything like that? So uh, my uh, becoming a writer was actually interesting. It, it was uh, it was uh, a kind of a detour from what I actually wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to be like Maradona. That was a dream. Oh, uh, yeah. In 1994, <laughs> 86, there was that World Cup and, and, and whatnot. Uh, so it was, you know, during one of these times when I was playing soccer, you know, uh, uh-huh. and, and I was getting sick a lot because I would go to like swampy areas and play into the night where, you know, mosquitoes would bite you. And sometimes you even get like, you know, fleas and whatnot. So during one of those times uh, when I was, I ended up at the hospital, uh, my, my dad started telling me a story. He was, you know, bored having to stay the night with me. Mm. And I just remembered being so riveted and transfixed into what, you know, this imaginary world. And I mean, I had started to read, I knew the stories of animals and whatnot, but these were stories about human beings, yeah. you know? And, and, and so I, I, that was the first time I became interested in stories. And, you know, two years later or so, uh, I had stopped playing trance and all that, trancey. And I was, uh, you know, I, I went to him. I was like, would you please read me a story? And he just brought out a book and said, why don't you just get it yourself? Mm. And sitting down and reading that book, I saw that, you know, many of those stories he told me had emerged from that book. So I knew from that time that that was what I wanted to do. So it was like an, a discovery, you yeah. know, and from then on, I wouldn't let go of, of books. Yeah. So the, the story that he told you when you were in the hospital, was it, uh, it was fiction and was it about characters and, or, or animals or what was the story he was telling you? So it was, it was uh, actually from Amos Tutuola's The Palm Wine Drinkard, which uh, you might know uh, about the book because uh, Dylan Thomas at the time reviewed it ah. in The Observer mm-hmm. and was too shocked, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so so it, 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 it's about this, uh, it, this kind of a psychedelic quest into the unknown. So it's ah. kind of a magical, realist story, but, but it's about human beings doing extraordinary things. And I thought that it was miraculous that someone could imagine this thing. And I wanted my mind to walk in that same way. Uh, so you could say right. that what brought me uh, into writing was this wanton sense of uh, awakening, but also this desire to replicate uh, these things that these writers were doing, and also to join this flowing ocean of narratives that I feel was like flowing through the minds of writers through time and globally. So I wanted to, I wanted some kind of affinity with, with these writers as well. Yeah. And so when you went to college, was this uh, firm in your mind that this is something you wanted to do or, or were you still trying to figure out whether you could do this professionally? Well, there were always doubts. Uh, yeah. Uh, for a long time, I, I always thought that my parents were just being mean because they, they were mostly against it. Uh, they, uh, my mother especially was more of like a, a um, pragmatic mm-hmm. person. So 
they, they wanted something that was more vocational. So they right. would always say, okay, well, how many people do you think will make money out of writing in Nigeria? I mean, how many people read even? Uh, and they would be like, okay, don't waste this, your, you know, brilliant mind. Why don't you like study law or yeah. economics or medicine and just write by the side? What, what have you got to lose? So, but, but I, you know, now I, for a long time, I was thinking that that was just like them trying to prevent me from what I love, but mm-hmm. I think they were trying to be kind and yeah. you know, they were really looking out for me. So, but in 2015, when I I was uh, you know in the running for the Booker Prize and my dad came uh, you know to 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 London to attend the ceremony and he saw this crowd of people who came to hear us read mm-hmm. uh, at the you know at, at what, what, that center wherever we did that thing you know that that was when he knew that man this guy could actually make something out of this thing <laughs> you yeah know? so yeah. Even, even with the fact that I had published a, a, a book, a, you know, that was internationally recognized, I became a professor out of writing. <laughs> they still had anxieties around it yeah. until that very moment. Until then. And did you ever tell him that you trace it all back to that night when he told you those stories in the hospital? Yeah, he knows about it, but my dad doesn't like to take any uh, glory. He he would just be like, "Well, this is your destiny. This is what you were always meant to do." So, but but I do believe that uh, that 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 day definitely was an epiphanic moment for me. Yeah, and was it just the two of you there? It was just the two of us. Yes. Yeah. So I wonder if that's part of it. If if you were, you know, it was a moment where you just had some undivided attention uh, from someone who was very important to you. And it, it just, the whole thing combined to just resonate in this uh, almost magical moment. Yeah, no, it did. And in fact, that, that's what is interesting about uh, memory, right? I, I remember very vividly that evening, you know, because the, the, the light of the day was dying. You know, we're going to talk about the remains of the day. So yeah. not much was remaining of that day. You know, I, I just remember sitting uh, in the in the uh, you know porch outside the house, and I just started reading the book, and and I was surprised to find these characters in the book. So I, I think for some reason I I did not expect that you know this was these stories were around. I thought my dad was like one of the the geniuses of the world because he could come up with these stories. You know, right. I, I didn't know that he was he was actually reading them so that he could tell them to me. Yeah. So from that moment I wanted, you know, to 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 join these this committee of writers that I couldn't see, I did not have any contact with, you know, this, uh, this, this ans- to merge into that ancestral cloth of creativity, whatever that is, yeah. you know, wherever it is. Right. Ah, well, as a, I, I just love hearing the story. And as a parent uh, myself, it seems like a good reminder that ordinarily I would think that the day that my child was had to be in the hospital would be only a terrible memory and the worst day of his life and, and so on. But, you know, good things can come even out of um, some of the darkest but, moments. Yeah. Okay, definitely. so let's talk about The Remains of the Day. Where were you in life when you discovered this book? Hmm, good question. I, you know, I, I, I think I may have picked it up from the library or, or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was it. I, 
I picked it up from the library. I was in Cyprus, and uh, I had uh, finished the first draft of The Fisherman. So I, after every project is finished, I have a, a moment or a period of anxiety. I don't know what to call it. I just, you know, it's as if something has been a kind of a virtue, you know, has been mm-hmm. taken away from me. And, and I, I want to regain some kind of energy. So I, I go on a reading spree, really, yeah. which is one of the reasons why I took on this, uh, you know, judging thing, because I finished my novel last in November. So mm. now I'm reading, you know, I'm doing that. So so I picked it, I picked the, the book up from the library and started reading it. And at first I was like, man, how did this book win the Booker Prize? And, you know, <laughs> it, there was nothing remarkable about the 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 opening uh, yeah. you know chapter. Yeah. <laughs> but but I decided that okay I couldn't go back and get another book so I continued to read and you know uh, by by the next morning I had finished the book yeah right let me just fill in listeners you mentioned something that we talked about before we started recording here that you're currently serving as a judge for the Booker Prize that's right yes. And so you're you're kind of refilling the tank the way that you do after you finish a novel by immersing yourself in literature. Except that this this tank is all consuming. It's like you know, <laughs> a bottomless pit of of books. <laughs> it's overflowing. Uh, okay, so something kept you at this book. You read it all night until you finished. Uh, were you what what appealed to you about it? So I think that novel is is a book that can best be described as quiet. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's a weird adjective to use for a, a novel, but but I think quiet is. It, I just can't think of any any other adjective uh, to describe it. And the reason for that is because. There is a lot of deceptive simplicity. So, yeah, so you have right. what seems like a mundane situation, mm-hmm. you know, but but slowly you are, you know, you keep on peeling these layers and layers of memory alongside the the, the novel, you know, you know, the main character, uh, Mr. Stevens. So there is a sense uh, that we will get to know this man in. At least have a good sense of who he is, uh, if not in totality by, say, the fifth chapter. But no, you you keep wanting. You know, it's an ocean of 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 of, of human understanding, yeah. and I think that that's what makes the novel. You know, one of the I think greatest uh, works of fiction of at least the twentieth century. Yeah, and there's there's sort of this this trick that's happening that the author is pulling on us, which is we're, at the same time, we're becoming more and more appreciative that the main character is partially blinded, that there are things he's not seeing, and there's things he's, like his whole worldview is about his focus on seeing things in a particular way, but yet as we start to see the overlaps with history, the reader is is seeing is is making connections that he's not, and we're sort of waiting for him to come to some of the realizations that we maybe get to before he does. Yeah, that is exactly true, and you know it it it, it, it it's kind of interesting in the sense that 
the, the blinkered view that it seems to have, you cannot, so there's a gray area. This is one of the brilliant devices, I think, uh, that Ishiguro makes use of, you know, that is, you don't find in contemporary fiction a lot. The use of, of irony, whether mm-hmm. it's the dramatic kind or even the straight kind. So, so there, the, the, the whole life of Mr. Stevens is kind of ironical. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he is saying, you know, he, he is in, for instance, there's a point in which he uh, criticizes uh, Miss, Miss Keating, the, the woman whom he, uh, in fact, falls in love with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. but but never actually admits that he's in love with. So he criticizes her for being, you know, like kind of um, cheesy, somebody who, you know, does. In fact, for, in fact, I think a better example is for reading these cheap books, these romance books. <laughs> but he, in some ways, craves and envies that she's doing that. He wants the ability to be able to do that, but he cannot bring himself to, 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 to do that. So he can, but he cannot see the irony of that. He cannot yeah. see the, the contradictions, the subtle contradictions in almost everything that he does. And, and I think that's what uh, makes the novel uh, not just a brilliant examination, a kind of an X-ray of, 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 of a human being, but, but a, a, a tragic one as well. Mm, yeah, and I found that even though it it's in such a particular world and in some ways you feel like it's taking this huge uh deep dive into, you know, the mind of a very particular character at a very particular time and place, it felt like it was completely universal in the sense that I I feel like I've led a blinkered life in a lot of ways too or I could I could identify with times where I've been deceiving myself to a, a certain extent and uh you know it it wasn't just like a a documentary of a butler in 1950s england but it really felt like a yes. study of of a human being yeah that's exactly true and think about uh there 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 are a few things that uh happen in the novel that i i cannot forget so, so I, I when i teach fiction i ask my students on the first day of class i say I ask them, okay, you guys have come in here. Why? Because you want to uh, learn how to write. I, I don't suppose ordinary fiction or average fiction or even good fiction. Perhaps you want to learn what great fiction is. So what, what is a great novel? And, you know, they give me a variety of answers. But, you know, over the years, I've, disco- I've, I've come to like a kind of a definition that emerged not from me, but from my students. So a great a, a great novel uh, can a novel generally let me say can make you think about something. It can entertain you, sorry, and it perhaps can make you feel something. Okay, mm-hmm. a good book does at least two of those, but a great novel does all three. So it entertains you. It makes you think about or learn something that you didn't know uh, about anything, and it. It makes you feel something. Mm-hmm. So that novel does all three. And, and I think what stands out the most to me is the way in which history works. Mm-hmm. So, so, so the, the, the history springs its own shadows. So, so this man, Mr. Stevens, 
does not want, he does not like what has emerged of his, you know, uh, cherished Lord whom he served for, for a long time uh, because, you know, he, his Lord, his, his master was uh, a kind of a Nazi sympathizer. In fact, mm-hmm. did donate to, to the uh, Nazi cause. So he wants to turn his back on history. But then he, under, he, he realizes eventually that history does not, even when it, when it turns its back, it's present with you. You see it all the time. So, so his blinkered view becomes in some ways a transgression, which I think he realizes towards the end of the novel, that look, I am in denial. And, and even though he doesn't state this, but you see it through the avatar that uh, Ishiguro creates in his father. So, for instance, the, the novel does take place within, I think, a day or a few days. So, but, but you can so, so, so you don't know how uh, Mr. Stevens will, will end up, what will happen to him after this journey through, you know, mm-hmm. the, the next spaces in England. But you have his father who lived a similar life, and you saw the tragic unraveling of his father being, you know, continuing this uh, life of strict servitude and extraordinary, extra-conservative, you know, uh, sense of duty. And it kills him mm. at the end of the day. Yeah. So, so, so you don't need the novel to continue beyond the, you know, the few pages that it is. You can almost predict what that this man would go on being like this, and that is what I think breaks the reader at the end of the novel. Yeah, right. When you were first reading it that night that you spent with it, were you reading it just swept away and as a reader immersed in the story, or did you also have your writerly hat on thinking? Wow, this is a technique I could learn from this. I can learn from that. If only I could do this. If only I could do that. That kind of thing. Uh, well, I think I think that uh, it's sad, but I've not. I've 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 been unable for a long time to read as just a, a normal <laughs> reader read for pleasure. Really, right. I would love to, to 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 read that way. It's like you know Brad Pitt or uh, Taylor Swift. Uh, being sad that now they can no longer live a normal life. They can't go to yeah. Walgreens or CVS <laughs> or Lidl, you know, just to, to shop. So, right. so I, I just have to, to, to be analytical when I read. I read as a writer, even when I don't want to. You yeah. know, I'm scolding the inner writer uh, within me for not having acquired this kind of skill that this guy has. So that was how I read it. I read it, you know, in reverence. I read it uh, as a critique as well. I read it, uh, you know, also as one who is trying to to understand what techniques were at play here. Mm-hmm. How do you think he achieves that effect of it being quiet? Do you think that comes from the the prose or the pace or the setting or the 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 inner life of the character or what how does he get that because he does get that that tone of the book is so distinctive and i've read yeah. some other short stories of his that are like that as well and i'm wondering if you've ever been able to pinpoint how he gets to that effect 
that's a good question. I, I think I might have an idea, but obviously I'm not, uh, uh, you know, this is my opinion. Right. But uh, I, I realized uh, some time ago that the best fiction occur when plot in its own self is, is meaningless mm. if it is not a function of character. Mm. So by which I mean that you want to tell a story. Let's say you want to tell a story about evil. Okay? So close your eyes. Do not think about any kind of event. Nothing happens. Have a blank slate. And just try and imagine, even if it's like in, in a totemic sense, a character emerge on a platform. And think about every quality of that character. What makes it, what do they think? How do they react to things? What is their inner life? What are their aspirations? What gives, what breaks them? What gives them joy? What gives them hope? What do they like to do? How, what is their politics like? <laughs> if you can understand that character in totality, plot will emerge organically from it. Mm. So this is what, I mean, I can give you an example. Uh, you know, George, George uh, uh, Holden of, of Blood Meridian by Komak Makate, mm. <laughs> or even uh, Chegu of, of, the, uh, of uh, No Country for Old Men. Mm-hmm. And, and, yeah, I think that's a, that's a, that's a, uh, a novel. You know, that, that is an embodiment of evil. You know, this is a guy yeah. who all he wants to do is he gets into, he breaks into your store, right. tosses a coin, and decides he's God. You know, he's like, a, a kind of a maniacal, evil subversion of God himself. <laughs> so, so, so that is what I think uh, Ishiguro has done here. And there are writers who, who do that. They don't, you know, you, you read the short stories of uh, the American uh, writer uh, Jhumpa Lahiri, for instance, mm-hmm. and, and you see that it, it also. Not once does she take her eyes away from the character, Mm. You know, everything, if she's describing the streets, she's describing the, the weather, she's describing it by the character looking at the weather. So there's never a moment when you have, oh, the, the streets of, of uh, Lincoln or London was cold in the weather. No. As he is walking down the street, he's looking at the cold weather, you know, whatnot. So, so there's, there's no disconnection. At the, there's almost no time in the remains of the day are we unhooked from Mr. Stevens? Right. I think that is, so, so we have this sense of being wholly, endlessly, and insanely amassed in this, you know, this, this uh, cavern of humanity. Yeah. And that is why we come out feeling like, man, what did I mean? It's like I've, on, I've, I've, I've journeyed into the soul of an individual, not into, into his mind or, or head or whatnot, no into something more profound, something deeper, something beyond the surface of things. Right. And then, and, and the story he is living through is a quiet one in a, it's a, it's a profound one, as you say, but, you know, I'm thinking of at the beginning where he's, he's trying to adjust to his new American boss or master, I guess. And he, the American is a little more, is a little bolder, a little more, mm-hmm. uh, you know, communicative and kind of, kind of joshes with him a little more. And Stevens t- develops this idea that he needs to learn how to banter, 
that, yeah. you know, he has the problem. And it kind of carries through the book. But you, you think about that and you start to really uh, see this as a dilemma that he's living through, that he can't yeah. quite get the hang of banter, but he feels like he would be doing a better job if he could if he could only figure out how to banter and he wishes he had his old mentors back so he could ask him how, you know, what do you do when yeah. the, when your, your boss banters, but it's, it's a very small and subtle thing for a, a human being to be living through. It is a quiet thing you might say, but he, you start to, to pin your hopes on it along with him and to think of it as this obstacle to overcome. And it gets very exciting. Uh, but in another way, you know, it's, it's not, he's not talking about, uh, explosions or or a car chase or you know anything that you would think would be exciting if you saw it in a movie or or read about it um, you know on in a newspaper or something but it's it's this fascinating way of taking an individual's private inner thoughts and turning them into yeah. something that's just riveting. Yeah, no, that that's that's absolutely true, and you 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 you, you think of of life itself. So, so I, I like to think of, of this novel, of, of that character, of this, you know, what you've just said, as, as trees, for instance. So scientists have long found that trees actually are moving. You know, we, 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 we do not get that sense. There's mm. a tree right in my window in front of my house, and, you know, I do not never imagine that this is moving, but it, I think it is. And actually, it makes sense that it's moving. So life is mobility itself. Mm -hmm. So this, it just it just occurs or, 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 or that some uh, manifestations of life take that mobility reluctantly, <laughs> but they all aspire all the same to move. So that is what is interesting about that slice of desire, which is what sets the novel in motion. Okay, Lord Faraday has asked me to do something. Get out of this aspect state that you're in and take a journey. Why don't you discover what, you know, the, the beauty of breathing and, and take a drive, you know? And he decides, well, after all, this man has been scolding me for some time now. He pay, he's been paying attention to me. Yes, he's a foreigner, he's an American, but I might as well take advantage of this. I might as well try to discover what it actually means to do something new, to, 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 to banter better, or to, to take a drive and discover Britain. So that very, as, as archetypal and, and quiet as, as that desire is, it results in, in something even more profound. So which is what I think makes some of the greatest stories Thrive uh, uh, and, 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 and as engaging as they are. If you look at, um, you know, even in film, think about uh, Gladiator, for instance, by, mm -hmm. by uh, uh, Ridley Scott. So think about the, the, the desire that sets that, that, that whole story in motion. It is extremely simple, it is very archetypal. This man is a, 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 a soldier, a, a commander. In the, in the Roman army, he has fought his battles. He has uh, done his duty. He just now wants to go home to his wife and child. That is it. Mm. So what happens? The whole universe conspires to stop him from going home. Right. But 
the story really is that simple. The same thing, you could, you could make the case for Odyssey, okay? He has to go and fight as the king of Ithaca. Uh, Greece is under attack by, by these Trojans. Okay, the battle is done. He wants to go back home. So, but then the, an epic structure emerges from almost the simplest of desires. So, 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 so that is one of, again, one of the things that makes this novel very substantive. And the reason why I like to teach it a lot, because, you know, usually uh, I use the word amateur, but, but most of the young writers like us, we want to do this very explosive thing, you know. Mm. There's this, this character who wants to do this, who wants to go here and do all that. Right. You don't really need all that. You just need to give the, the, the character something as simple, even archetypal, but let them really want it. Right, right. And it can be, uh, to raise the stakes doesn't mean... Uh, you know, will he become a millionaire or will he, uh, you know, fall in love and get married? But it can be something like, will he find peace or will he find yeah. understanding about himself? Absolutely. Doesn't. Yes. Mm. So you've been called a chronicler. That was what you were the designation when you were awarded the uh, foreign policy tribute as one of the 100 global thinkers, is that how you view yourself in your storytelling and in your fiction? <laughs> well, maybe uh, to a certain extent. Yeah. Uh, yes, I, I, I do have the sense, especially in Anokasha Minorities, which is my, uh, uh, was my 2019 novel. I felt like I was uh, trying to monumentalize a piece of of uh, Igbo civilization, West African uh, mm -hmm. civilization that has been uh, thrown out the window, you know, mm -hmm. and, and swallowed up by this great boa of, of, of Western civilization and Christianity. Yeah. So, so, so in a way, you could say that I'm trying to, to chronicle certain things. Yeah, right. And and would you? How would you compare that with an Ishiguro who you could say he was chronicling the 1950s or a way of life of these servants? But I also feel like he sort of has another project going as well. Is that kind of what you're trying to do in your fiction? Oh yeah, I I I really do believe that uh, fiction should say more than one thing. So or should should in fact do more than one thing. Yeah. So. You know, if, I, if I'm telling the story of, of a band of brothers and the fishermen, for instance, uh, I, I'm also actually made, telling the story of Nigeria, the way in which, you know, uh, these different uh, nations were on their own. And, you know, somebody comes in and says, you know, this, I want to reorder things. This is how I think you should be, you know. And then hmm. uh, by that pronunciation, you know, almost a kind of a prophetic uh, saying, their lives become uh, torn apart and, and, and their future becomes, you know, uh, uneven and, and even darkly uh, mythic uh, as, as, you know, this, the story of Nigeria still remains today. So, so I, I, do, I do get that sense, uh, you know, from Ishiguro's uh, novel as well. Mm, yeah. Um, I read a quote from Ishiguro that he said, he was very consciously trying to write for an international audience. And he said, one of the ways I thought I could do this was to take a myth of England that was known internationally, in this case, the English butler. 
And then he was sort of helped because he said there weren't many stories told from the butler's point of view. So he felt like he had a kind of freedom to imagine his way into what the butler was thinking and, and what his life would have been like. Uh, does that resonate with you at all? Have you, uh, do, are you pulling from your own experience or the people that you know and know closely? Or are you uh, also looking around for a kind of archetype or a mythical figure that you can inhabit in your fiction? I think it depends. Uh, I uh, have just uh, finished a novel that is uh, set in the 60s, Nigeria, mm-hmm. and which, which is based on a historical event. But say in The Fisherman, for instance, my first novel, I was really pulling from my, my own uh, growing up, my childhood, so uh, usually my, my novels begin from questions, from some kind of uh, intuitive thinking or some, some uh, musing about the world, uh, certain mm-hmm. aspects of the world. So and that question for, for that novel was, what is it that can come between brothers or siblings and turn the bond, mm. the love between them into not indifference, not... Uh, you know, anything between but hate, the direct opposite, the other side of the spectrum. And and that's what informs the novel. So it's, it's really about how a kind of sacred bond of brotherhood is yeah. broken. Oh, right. It's such a great idea for a book and, and so fascinating. I wanted to jump into the 21st century and I know you're currently involved in the Alexander Project, a digital storytelling platform that uh, releases nonfiction narratives and, and combines it with A-list acting talent and puts out a short film of the story. So uh, I understand your piece is called When the Risen Dust Settles. So was this right. uh, specifically written for the digital performances or was this something that you were working on independently of Alexander? No, it really was. Uh, I had been thinking, obviously, about that story because mm-hmm. uh, it, it was a real event for a long time. But when uh, I, I got uh, the note, the invitation from the folks at Alexander team, uh, the editor, that was the first time I thought, okay, this is the time to actually put this into writing. Mm. And so I went. So so I, I wrote it, yeah. envisioning that it will be read aloud. Right. And what is the story about? So it's about a, a young uh, Chigozi Obioma who uh, finds himself uh, in uh, a, a, a kind of a unique uh, college, a unique university in Nigeria, a private one that is supposed to be a Christian Catholic school. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that in many ways is anything but. It is, in fact, a kind of a Soviet-style uh, uh, kind of, uh, uh, should I say, I, I don't want to go for superlatives, but a, a kind of a camp, you mm-hmm. know, right. where, where there are spies and uh, all, all kinds, of, like, you know, a, a kind of a, a very strict, almost a borderline, psychotic, uh, you know, strict, punishment that, uh, and mm. surveillance and, and life, you know. So, so we, we were not allowed to go out uh, or, or have uh, camera phones or computers. 
so we there was no access to internet the, you know so we were watched we we could not say anything we liked and you know it, it was a very stifling environment and what is even worse <laughs> over your head while you were going to school trying to become someone to to get a degree was always the perpetual cloud that you could be expelled from mm. from the the university at any time you know and and that was like a psychologically de- 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 psychologically defeating uh for many of us who were students there mhm and it, it was ruled by sort of a a particular individual who almost emerges as sort of a a cult-like figure or an authoritarian figure within this uh, subculture of this college? Yes. So it was by a band of sisters. And uh, these are supposed to be people who have dedicated their lives to God in the pursuit of holiness. (laughs) But they were, in fact, the opposite. They were some of the meanest people uh, that I have ever seen. And I I do not like to judge human beings, Mm -hmm. which is one one of the reasons I think I write fiction. I I feel like, uh, you know, I'm not perfect. So... I hesitate to call people names, but indeed, these, these people were truly mean. Uh, th- there was a, a, an incident that could not make it into that story, where somebody was was about to die, you know, but he was being forced to go on this compulsory spot. So every every Wednesday morning, they would shepherd us out of our resident halls like like kids and force us to do like one or two hours of compulsory <laughs> spots. You know, mm-hmm. in the name of it being, uh, you know, like healthy for us, you know, but you had to do it. And there was this guy who was suffering from from appendix. Uh, appendix was about to bust mm-hmm. and they were making him do this thing. And this guy was in pain. So he came to me. Uh, that was one of the first times I actually got in trouble, you know, with the with the sisters and, and the reverend fathers. You know, he came to me and I, I kind of uh, raised uh, an alarm and you know so he ended up being taken to the hospital because of my intervention mm-hmm. you know but the sisters and, and he was told that if he hadn't come at the time he came he would probably would have died and the sisters were mad at me you know for for ostensibly saving someone's life so that was yeah. how uh, mean uh, and and heartless these people kind of were right was it difficult for you to return to this and tell the story, or did it feel cathartic, or what was the experience like in in digging back into these memories for this? What is surprising to me is that I did not, for some reason, I, I buried the memory for such a long time. It just, mm. uh, you know, now I understand how people who had traumatic experiences wouldn't talk about it, mm-hmm. you know, uh, for a long time, I didn't. Uh, I think right now it feels somewhat cathartic because uh, it's as if I, I actually opened up, you know, something, a, a kind of a very closed and, 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 and uh, fortified and bunkered uh, door within me. And, and, and now that it's open, I, I feel like kind of a relief, yeah. you know. But yes, it was, it was somewhat difficult. Uh, and in fact, I felt like more, my memory, you know, was was murky, and I had to go to some friends, you know. Mm. Okay, was am I remembering this correctly? So, you know, they were the ones who helped me fill in some of the gaps that I had, you know, from because this 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 was like twelve years ago. So yeah, right. 
And have you gotten any response either from your uh, friends and your fellow students or the uh, the people who worked at the university? Have they responded in any way? Well, uh, I saw that someone with the name of the founding father of the school who who is one of the, you know, uh, figures mm-hmm. uh, in the in the story added me on uh followed me on instagram so wow. you know i think it's starting to go out there but i think uh rolling out the word on the on the piece has in uh, uh just more more uh publicity is starting to to come now there will be an article in a nigerian news about tomorrow so so i think it will it will be going out but yeah, some some of the old students have already uh, read and downloaded the piece, and you know they they've reached out to me and said, yeah, you, you're right. This is, uh, you know, you just drew us back to memory uh, lane mm-hmm. about yeah, all right. the things we went through. But uh-huh. I also think that once you can download it on uh, on Android, more mm-hmm. people will also. Right. And listen, so I wanted to ask you just about the process of putting it together. I know writing is such a solitary endeavor, and I was wondering what it was like for you as a writer to know that your work was going to be turned into a collaborative artistic project that would have, you know, a, a producer and, and a professional actor reading it and, and a short film was going to be made of it and, and so on. Were you worried that you were going to lose some control or were you excited to see what they would do with it? Or what was the what was the emotional ride that you took when you were working on this project? I felt like, you know, having had my work, had some, some experience with uh, my work being uh, transmitted into other medium. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I was more kind of uh, interested in seeing how that would unfold than anything. Because I felt like, you know, the, the Fisherman was made into this stage play that uh, was like, oh, yeah, went, right. was, yeah. was played in the, in the UK for some time. It was on the run. Yeah, so so I wasn't um, necessarily uh, anxious, but I, I, I really was interested in seeing how that would come together. And, and I really think that everything... Um, had, you know, was well done. So Alexander is really a, a very innovative enterprise. The, the mm-hmm. guy, Cameron Lamb, he has a very unique vision. I, I don't think that this has been done before where you have a kind of unity of all the senses, you know, the the, 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 the auditory sense, the, the visual one, and of course the the, the the sense of of reading you know and mm-hmm. and processing these stories all coming together in one forum i think is brilliant is amazing and and interestingly uh you know when when i when i wrote the, the story and and read it through you know during the revisionary process i you know of course i felt some of the the uh, nuances and and some some of the things but when i heard it Read mm. by by Sopo Dirso. Yeah, I cried at the end. Oh. You know, so it almost made this story like something you know that has been taken away from me and the product of another person's uh, you, you know mind because he's putting his own uh, professional uh you know uh experience into it he, he's 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 mimicking the voices 
he's 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 putting cues here and there. He's he, he's he's emphasizing certain experiences and enunciating certain things in certain ways that made the, the, the you know the story come so much alive that I was moved by it. You yeah. know, which yeah. wasn't something I did when I read it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's really something. That's that's a great success story. Uh, I love to hear it. I think we always we always sort of hope that that's how it would be. Uh, but then I'm thinking of the example of like a Stephen King who had Stanley Kubrick make The Shining and, you know, one of the one of the most famous horror movies of all time and regarded as this essential classic of cinema and Stephen King hated it and and thought it got it wrong and you know he seems to be the only one who didn't like the movie um so it's it's, it's wonderful to hear that you you felt like it was it, it added something to your own experience to be able to hear it in the in the voice of someone who knows how to emphasize certain things and and did such a good job with it yeah it did ah okay so i have a surprise bonus question for you Okay. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. After achieving success with your first two novels, you're visited by an eccentric billionaire who informs you that he's a huge fan of both you and Kazuo Ishiguro. His idea is to meld the two of you together. He's asked whether you would consider writing about a character from a historical subculture similar to the butler in 1950s England in Remains of the Day. You resist for a while... But his checkbook is open, and he's offering to pay any amount you'd like. The only stipulation is that you can't write about yourself or anyone you know. Do you think you could write such a book? And if so, what time, place, and character would you choose? Wow. Hmm. Yeah, I, I think I would be willing to write such a book, I mean, Mm -hmm. If if he is uh, going to give me any amount I want, <laughs> I don't think he'll be able to pay. Because when I say give me $50 million. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I, I think I will be uh, very interested in writing about... I always wonder, what was it like? What What was, say, my part of Africa like in the 11th, 12th century. Mm. We yeah. have a sense uh, of, of what England might have been. Like you have Beowulf, you have, uh, you know, in fact, even in fantasy, you, I think that was one of the things that I liked about Game of Thrones because it was able to reimagine this, you know, period in Western civilization. And I don't think that uh, because uh, the, the writing system, for instance, in, in most of the West African cultures, did not were not used in like documenting things. They were more like for sacred uh, inscriptions, you know, in shrines and whatnot. Mm -hmm. They didn't have like a writing system like you have where you know Homer or or whoever is writing these stories of Troy or Herodotus. So I really imagine I, I would I would like to write a story set in that period. Mm. Uh, you know, something like Mel Gibson's Apocalypso. I don't know if you saw that movie. No, yeah. I didn't. By okay, so I think it's about this Mayan civilization. Oh, right. You know. Yeah. So I thought that was very interesting. So I, I, I would I would like to to set a story 
in that time and uh what 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 else um Yeah, that that would be the place. Hmm. Well, the bad news is I don't have fifty million dollars to give you, but uh, <laughs> the good news is I would spend twenty nine ninety five on buying that book if you're able to write it someday. So, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and in the meantime, I hope everyone runs out and gets your books and checks out your work on Alexander which I understand is available at www.alxr.com. Chigozi Obioma, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you so much, Jack. It's such a wonderful uh, time I've had. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I hope you enjoyed it. My thanks to Chigozi Obioma. Wasn't that great? I loved the story of his father at the hospital telling stories. My own father did something similar. He had a little run where he was telling jokes that cracked us up. For a month or two, he was like a different person, full of this humor and vibrancy, confident in his humor and his jokes. We all applauded. I remember one joke in particular. He said, when I was young, we couldn't even afford a record player. Grandma dressed up in all black and ran around in a circle singing songs. We laughed so hard. And then one day we were sitting down to eat and he was a little late coming to the table and my sister wandered into the living room and saw him stash something under the sofa cushions. She pounced on it and discovered a magazine article about Bob Hope that included some of Bob Hope's best-known jokes which my father had been stealing. But you know what? I don't care. I still like the image of my grandma running around the room, wearing all black, singing a song, and I like the story that my father was pulling jokes from the magazine. Both of those things make me happy, and nothing about the story can take that away. Speaking of takeaways, I hope one of your takeaways is to go find Chigozi Obioma's books and to check out The Alexander Project at www.alxr.com. You can also find us at historyofliterature.com and facebook.com slash historyofliterature. Support us at patreon.com slash literature. Ranks us, ranks, ranks us and reviews us. I don't know why I'm talking like a a prospector here, ranks us, reviews us, likes us, listens us, subscribes us. Uh, Thursday, we're going to take a deep dive into The Remains of the Day, that stunning novel. See if we can take it apart, see what works. Like lifting the hood and seeing how the engine works. And then we're going to have some great love poetry as we steam into Valentine's Day week. We have a love affair on Monday. That might surprise you. And then a surprising love poem on Thursday. So please join us for those. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time.
the Podglomerate, a Sonic Universe.